Hey everyone, this is Mike DeBliss. The topic for this podcast is criminal tax liabilities and sentencing. Um, interestingly enough, I've had a lot of questions about this topic in the last couple of months, um, and it's a very broad topic um, that requires a little bit of uh, background information on the sentencing guidelines. Um, so the way I'm going to structure the podcast is uh, breaking it down into several episodes uh, because it can uh, feel like you're drinking uh, water out of a hydrant. Um, so we're going to start out pretty basic, uh, give you a little bit of background information on the sentencing guidelines, and then move forward and um, go through specific applications of the sentencing guidelines to criminal tax uh, prosecutions. Now, as many of you are aware, um, and as many tax practitioners uh, uh, understand, there is um, a significant difference between civil tax deficiencies and criminal tax deficiencies. Um, it's important to understand the difference in order to guide a client through the criminal process while keeping an eye towards resolving any future civil tax controversy. Um, generally speaking, the criminal uh, tax loss number um, drives the sentence that a defendant convicted of a tax crime ultimately faces. And uh, that issue uh, goes hand in hand with the sentencing guidelines, which we'll get uh, deeper into in this discussion. Um, but suffice to say, um, the amount of the tax deficiency in a criminal tax case is one of the most important aspects of the case. So let's back up a little bit and um, provide a little bit of background information on the sentencing guidelines. Um, sentencing issues, uh, uh, like it or not, are arguably the most important part of a federal criminal tax case. And that's um, for no reason other than the fact that the likelihood of conviction is so high. Um, in fact, the proofs and the evidence that the government brings are usually so strong and so airtight that few, if any, defendants ensnared in the federal criminal justice system even challenge um, the case and go to trial. Many plead out. So the best that defense counsel can do for his client is minimize a sentence. Now, the law surrounding federal criminal sentencing is in a state of upheaval. Uh, the Booker case uh, fundamentally altered the legal landscape, and um, today it's an unsettled area. The um, way I'm going to uh, break this section down is to discuss it from five uh, different angles. The first is the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines. I'll provide you with a general overview of them. Second, I'll provide you with the sentencing procedures. Third, uh, we'll discuss Booker and its immediate aftermath. Four, we will get specific when it comes to the sentencing guidelines for criminal tax prosecutions. And then finally, uh, we'll discuss recent developments in case law. So here is um, a quick and dirty overview of the sentencing guidelines. Uh, they were a response to the concern that sentences being handed down in federal criminal cases were uh, disparate, highly unpredictable, and too low. Uh, by disparate, it 
um, means that they, uh, they, they were inconsistent. Um, so what one district court might impose for conviction of a criminal tax offense would be wildly different than what another um, federal district court would impose for conviction of the very same criminal tax offense. Um, and so that was a concern that the um, guidelines were in response to. Um, and then the other two, of course, were that the sentences were highly unpredictable and um, too low. Now, whether the sentences were too low or not is more or less a question uh, touching on one's political ideology. Um, I'll be brutally honest with you. As a uh, defense attorney, um, I... Uh, did, I do not uh, think that they were too low, and I actually take exception to that. Um, however, um, you know, as I said, it is an issue that touches on one's political ideology as well as one's um, idea of the um, of the uh, criminal justice system and um, you know punishment in general. Uh, but what it boils down to is that there was dissatisfaction with the old regime. And the pre-sentencing guideline approach was, in essence, um, subject only to broad statutory rules. Um, this allowed the judge an enormous amount of discretion. As a defense attorney, uh, we oftentimes uh, like that uh, because it gives us the opportunity to argue um, strenuously for our clients at the time of sentencing since the judge has uh, such um, enormous discretion to determine the sentence. Um, so again, that uh, inures to the benefit of our clients. Um, but again, the U.S. Uh, Sentencing Commission and uh, the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines uh, were created in an attempt to provide more predictability, more uniformity, more consistency, and um, sadly, uh, uh, higher sentences. Now, as far as the a sentencing table goes. Um, it's difficult to understand it without actually taking a look at it and um, observing the table at the time I'm explaining it. But I'm going to try to paint a picture in your head because I, um, you know, I realize that this is a podcast and it's not a webinar. So if you can visualize this in your mind, there are a number of tables that appear in the sentencing guidelines. Uh, the sentencing guidelines are essentially statutes and um, certainty as the sentencing commission was trying to get at is provided through a mathematical approach. Um, there's a vertical column and a horizontal column. Going down the vertical column, the defense figures out the offense level. Then the defense correlates um, that offense level by going across the horizontal axis um, axis rather with the criminal history. The higher the offense level and the more um, egregious the defendant's criminal history, the higher the sentence. In tax cases, uh, most defendants are not repeat offenders. Typically, if the client is convicted of a tax crime, it's um, kind of uh, a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence and uh, there is no prior criminal history. So usually, uh, what that translates into is that the defendant is in a criminal history category of one uh, when it comes to previous offenses. 
Uh, the offense category is uh, determined by a number of considerations, the most important of which is the tax loss number, uh, what we discussed um, about up front. After you figure out the offense level, that offense level is correlated to the criminal history category. And then um, essentially there's an intersection of um, that row and that column. And that intersection is uh, the sentencing range. And the sentencing range is expressed in terms of a range of months. So for example, if the defendant, um, and this is post-trial uh, and assuming that the defendant has been convicted, if the defendant is at offense level 19 with zero or one previous convictions, then under the sentencing guidelines, uh, one would expect a sentence between 30 and 37 months in prison. And again, that's based on simply um, figuring out uh, the criminal history um, and uh, correlating that with the offense level and at the intersection of the two um, of, uh, of the uh, row and the column is a sentencing range of between 30 and 37 months. Now, prior to the act, uh, judges had an enormous amount of discretion in deciding sentences. The act um, transferred the power that had been exercised by the sentencing judge to the sentencing commission. And in doing so, it directed the Sentencing Commission to promulgate guidelines to be used for sentencing. Unlike the prior sentencing regime in which a prisoner would be released after serving only a portion of the sentence, under the act, um, a person convicted of a crime is released at the completion of the full sentence, reduced only by any credit earned for good behavior while in custody. Uh, what that means is that uh, the defendant convicted of an offense is serving out the entire term as opposed to having uh, the possibility, um, as illusory as it might be, of getting out early on parole. So if you are familiar with the state penal uh, system, um, there is what's called uh, parole. And parole often allows... Um, defendants convicted of a crime to be released earlier than the end point of their sentence. So for example, in New Jersey, if a defendant were convicted of an offense and sentenced to a term of five years in state prison, it's unlikely that the defendant, unless they have a god-awful record, is going to serve every day of that five years. Instead, they may serve um, approximately two years and then be released on parole with very strict conditions. And um, the idea behind parole is to give the defendant um, you know, the opportunity to get out early and to rebuild their life and while at the same time having the sort of Damocles hanging over their head because if they violate any of the conditions of parole, then they could be sent back to state prison to serve out the balance of that sentence, which in the example I gave would be um, serving out the balance of the five-year prison sentence. Finally, the Act made the Sentencing Commission's guidelines binding on the courts, although it preserved for judges a limited amount of discretion. 
And so a number of issues um, arose as a result of um, of the sentencing commission's um, you know meetings and um, as a result of the uh, sentencing commission's guidelines. Uh, the first issue that uh, came into consideration was uh, whether the guidelines took into consideration the total harm caused by the defendant or merely uh, the crimes for which he was actually convicted. And um, what the guidelines did was it allows the sentencing judge to consider all relevant conduct of the defendant, not just the crimes for which he was actually convicted. So under Section 1B1.3, uh, relevant conduct includes not only the conduct for which the defendant was convicted, but also um, a broad and extensive laundry list of other um, conduct, uh, the first of which is uncharged conduct, the second of which is actions that took place beyond the applicable statute of limitations, the third is actions for which the defendant was actually acquitted, and the fourth is even, believe it or not, conduct of other people. Uh, so I want to back up for a second to just um, uh, fill in some gaps on the actions for which defendant was actually acquitted because that sounds a little counterintuitive that that could be considered when the judge is imposing sentence, yet um, it can. So sentencing decisions are made by the judge on a preponderance of the evidence uh, basis as opposed to beyond a reasonable doubt. So um, when it comes to burdens, um, in the law, we consider preponderance of the evidence to be the lowest uh, burden that exists. Um, after preponderance of the evidence, it's usually by clear and convincing evidence. And then finally, beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, so as many of you are aware, the beyond a reasonable doubt um, burden is the highest burden. And it's what the state or government has to uh, prove in order to um, uh, in in order to make their case out and in order for a jury to find a defendant convicted in a criminal trial. Uh, when it comes to civil issues, uh, the clear and convincing evidence standard is generally used. Uh, preponderance of the evidence um, is uh, generally used in cases where a grand jury is assembled to determine whether to uh, to determine whether uh, to uh, pass a true bill of indictment, um, and a true bill of indictment is what kickstarts the whole uh, criminal process. Uh, but it's a very low standard preponderance of the evidence. Uh, so those are some uses of these. Uh, burdens um, outside of sentencing. Uh, circling back to sentencing, um, as I mentioned before, sentencing decisions are made by the judge on a preponderance of the evidence basis. And so um, a jury, uh, what this means in uh, practically speaking is that a jury may have acquitted the defendant on one of the charges because the government didn't prove one or more elements beyond a reasonable doubt. But if the judge, on a preponderance of the evidence standard, believes that the defendant did it, all of that can be included. And, you know, it's, it's hard to understand and to wrap your head around because one would think that if the jury 
acquitted the defendant of that specific crime, that the judge should not be able to include it in his consideration of the defendant's sentence, um, notwithstanding the fact that the judge um, uses a lower standard, the preponderance of the evidence standard, and the jury um, uses a beyond a reasonable doubt. But understand the distinction, and I realize it's very nuanced. The jury, in order to convict the defendant, has to find that the government has proven each and every element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, If they find that the government did not meet its burden, then they would acquit the defendant or find him or her not guilty of that specific offense. But the judge, on the other hand, if he believes that the defendant did it based on the lower standard of preponderance of the evidence, then the judge can take that offense into consideration. And so not just the tax loss from the count of conviction, but all of this other relevant conduct can be considered by the judge when it comes to imposing sentence. If the judge believes under the lesser standard of preponderance of the evidence that the defendant um, committed the offense that the jury um, previously found the defendant um, not guilty of. And then uh, I want to flesh out this fourth um, issue of even conduct of other people. Uh, What that means is that as long as that conduct was in furtherance of and reasonably foreseeable in connection with uh, the defendant's uh, commission of the act, then the criminal activity jointly undertaken by the defendant um, is fair game. And uh, again, I realize that that can be uh, counterintuitive to what we might think. But uh, nonetheless, um, this, these four, um, uh, these four uh, items um, you know, of relevant, that uh, constitute relevant conduct um, can be considered by the judge under Section 1B1.3 when it comes to uh, sentencing a defendant for a criminal tax offense. Now, what I've done is I've tried to uh, create a step-by-step approach to uh, sentencing so that you get an idea and a flavor for what a a criminal tax um, attorney would do when it comes to, um, you know, when it comes to mitigation of sentencing for his or her client. Um, And the step-by-step process I'm going to discuss in the very next podcast. But suffice to say, um, I want to just list out the steps for you so that you know what's coming in the second podcast. Um, Step one for the defense attorney, and again, this is post-conviction now, so we're assuming that the defendant has been convicted of uh, one or more tax offenses. Um, and that conviction can arise as a result of a guilty plea or it can arise as a result of the defendant having gone to trial and um, been convicted. So step one um, is to determine the base offense level by reference to the tax loss number. And there is that uh, phrase again, tax loss number, that is going to come up time and time again. Second, 
um, is adjusting the offense level in light of specific offense characteristics. And again, this will all be fleshed out in the next podcast. Step three is calculating the sentence. And that's easier said than done. Step four, uh, we're going to discuss uh, fines. In step five, the court will determine whether restitution should be imposed. Step six is departures. Um, and that's very interesting. Um, basically, the discretion to deviate from the guidelines is known as a departure. And uh, the departure rules are contained in subparagraph 5K. And uh, that's what we're going to end with. Those will be the steps that a defense attorney will take when preparing a sentencing memo for his or her client in order to get the um, most favorable sentence for the client. Um, and you'll see uh, how that works um, in uh, real practice. Uh, so stick around for the second part of this podcast and uh, we'll get in uh, uh, get into a little bit more detail for um, the actual sentencing of the defendant.